Hello and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm Mary Alice Parks. And Mary Alice, uh, we have a special program in store today. Uh, Last week's elections uh, brought historic gains for Democrats, wins from coast to coast, uh, up and down the ballot. Of course, the big governor's races in Virginia and New Jersey, but also a whole range of state legislative and local elected officials, many of whom have never been involved in politics before, running for the first time and represent the faces of the resistance to President Donald Trump. So many stories. And we thought today we would highlight some of these stories, Mary Alice, and and talk to the people who got involved in politics, often because of the Trump era, and are responding directly to what they're seeing out there. Right. And I think that those local races got national attention for a few reasons. First, because a lot of those candidates just were incredibly diverse, ethnically diverse, um, diverse in their their political background. Like you were saying, a lot of first-time politicians Um, But also because people wondered whether local elections were the real true barometer of grassroots enthusiasm. And that's what everyone here in D.C. is so curious about looking ahead to next year's midterm elections. What is the temperature on the ground? And could there be a real swell of Democratic support? And is some of these local seats the best indicator that that is really true and happening? And I think that you're exactly right that that Democrats have been anxiously looking for a next generation, the the next sort of future leaders of their party. They've been really uh, struggling in a lot of ways to find new candidates that are inspiring um, uh, new voters. And I think that they felt good that they replenished their bench in some way last week. Yeah, obviously they needed wins. And uh, I was struck by how many of of these local elected officials became national stories almost overnight. So let's get right to it with our first guest. And now joining us here on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast, the mayor-elect of Hoboken, New Jersey, Mr. Ravi Bala. He is the first Sikh mayor in the state of New Jersey, and uh, we welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with what this last week or so, week plus, has been like for you. Uh, Did you anticipate the national attention, and what has it been like to kind of ride this wave and be one of the faces of this historic night? And what a lot of Democrats are hoping will be an historic trend for uh, for their party. Yeah, I, I did not uh, anticipate it. Uh, this has been a an interesting experience. I um, I'm very honored and humbled to to have the opportunity to represent uh, the citizens of Hoboken, uh, the city I love. It's uh, a wonderful city, and on a more general level, uh, to be part of a larger a larger movement. Um, of standing up um, against uh, the the wave of uh, what we're seeing coming out of Washington right now, uh, so it's um, it's just a privilege and honor to be uh, a part of this moment in history. Uh, and I want to ask about that about the, the larger piece of this because um, a lot of folks are talking about this and your rea- your election and many elections as a reaction to Donald Trump. This is about a statement against Trump and Trumpism. Do you read it that way? Do your constituents read it that way? Um, it, it might not be a statement against Trump as much as it is a statement for America and for our values. Uh, my father came to this country as an immigrant. Uh, we're a nation of immigrants. Uh, he came here with nothing, but he believed that in this country, if you work hard, uh, believe in your dreams, there's no conflict between being a sick and being an American, for example. Um, and I think that's really what our country's about. So to the extent that that 
American dream or that ideal is being compromised. Uh, it's not so much that it's coming from one person, but it's it's really a matter of, you know, our country trying to stand up for what we believe in. You know, Mayor, there was that flyer that made headlines percolated in your community in the final stages of the campaign that pictured a picture of you and read, don't let terrorism take over our town. You know, your opponent said it wasn't him and instantly denounced it. You said it was an anomaly. But what was that experience like? And did it tell you something about the, the campaign politics today? Did it actually rally your supporters in some way? Yeah, um, I- I, I it, first of all, it was, it was very hurtful personally to me, um, more so because it, it impacted my my daughter. It was her, her, she's ten years old. It was, her, it was her first experience with racism that impacted my wife and I. Um, so it, it was hurtful on that level. But that's not what Hoboken represents. Um, you know, Hoboken is a very diverse and welcoming community. Uh, we pride ourselves in that, and if. If we weren't, I don't think I would have been mayor. I would be mayor. I think people um, at the end of the day voted for who I, I think felt was best uh, best equipped to lead the city based upon our policy proposals, uh, you know, on the, the, the basic stuff, um, the quality of life, parks, uh, remediating flooding, infrastructure, the issues we ran on. You know, you're talking about local issues, which obviously it makes sense that folks in your community uh, would vote based on uh, who can handle the streets and flooding, like you said. But I, but I have been struck at some of the comments you've made about the national politics like we were just talking about. You know, you said that you are everything that the president hates, a brown man wearing a turban, a proud American who can stop his assaults. What is your role as a mayor in stopping the president's assaults, as you say? Can you do that in some way as a mayor? Yes, the um, with with the federal government, whether it's the EPA on climate change um, or any other branch of the federal government, um, compromising our ideals or or what we believe in to protect our country, it's becoming more incumbent upon uh, states uh, and as well as cities to really be that last line of defense. Uh, to stand up for what what our values are and to protect our citizens. So, you know, I'm the mayor of Hoboken. My job is to get the basic stuff right in terms of streets and roads, quality of life. But if there's any point in time where, um, whether it's the state government or the federal government, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, um, compromises our rights as Americans, uh, it's incumbent upon uh, the mayor's, of this of this country and the, the the governors to make sure that we protect our citizens. Obviously, as mayor, you're you're primarily, as Mary Ellen said, you're be talking about local issues. But if you had a message for President Trump, if there's a message that you could deliver, you the opportunity at an event to, to to address him directly. What would you What would you tell him about your experience and 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 the broader values that you that you're coming in to represent? I would extend a hand of friendship. Um, President Trump is, a, is an American, uh, just like I am. We're, we're part of the same country. We're part of the same world. Uh, I'd want to work with him on issues of common concern and uh, common common uh, uh, common interest. I think you know infrastructure is one of them. Uh, the president has made sure uh, made a, a pledge to um, you know to to invest in our country's infrastructure, and I. Uh, ran on a campaign as being, you know, Hoboken's infrastructure mayor. So I think uh, my message would be of one of uh, unity, uh, conciliation, and trying to identify areas where we can work together. 
Now, while your win was obviously historic, Hoboken has recently elected, uh, repeatedly recently elected Democrats as their mayors. So in your opinion, was there really something different about the voters who came out last week? Um, we, 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 in Hoboken, the elections are nonpartisan, so we don't run as Republicans or Democrats. Uh, that said, it's a largely Democratic town. Most of the candidates in the race, um, were, were, uh, registered Democrats. Um, I, I think it, it, um, it really, perhaps they have, they have, uh, come through in a different way because we are living in a different era. These are not normal times, so to speak. So, uh, you know, what you saw with that, that, that racist flyer, I, mean, I think it's just emblematic of, you know, the times we're living in. And it is, it is a different electorate today than it was uh, in years past. I'm curious about how the message gets spread nationally. There's been an outpouring of national interest. There's been so many organizations that have been out trumpeting your victory, some claiming credit in some ways that I'm sure that isn't exactly due. But what, what are your plans from here? Uh, any plans to take this message nationally with, with any of the organizations that are trying to, to capture a lot more Democratic seats in the midterm of the year? How do you, how do you take this message and, and, and extend it beyond Hoboken? Sure. Um, any, any opportunity that there is to um, to, you know, my primary duty is, is to represent the citizens of Hoboken and to make sure Hoboken progresses as a city. Um, in addition, uh, secondarily, if there's an opportunity to uh, stand up for our country and our, our, our values, our rights, our freedoms on a larger platform, um, you know, that I, I would welcome that. And I'm willing to work with anyone uh, to, towards those ends. What do you think about the state of the Democratic Party? nationwide. Do you think that they are still struggling, the party as a whole is still struggling for a national message? Does that matter? I think it does matter. I, I am concerned that we went through a bruising election in 2016. But, you know, this this election cycle offers a moment of hope. And I think that with the leadership of Tom Perez at the Democratic National Committee, uh, he's a outstanding man with a great history of achievement and accomplishment, the type of leader I think that can bring the Democratic Party back together. And um, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll move into 2018 on a better footing. And finally, Mr. Mayor-elect, you mentioned your daughter and, and her first experience with racism uh, that is, is a result of this campaign. What's been their reaction to this? I mean, they're, you know, I, I can't imagine they thought their dad was that cool if they're little kids before this. But right. like, you're just hoping your kids ho- think you're that cool. <laughs> but, but you know, now their dad is the is is the mayor elect, and after this bruising campaign, what what have they heard from their friends, and what's been their reaction to this whirlwind? No, it, it's it's nice. I mean, they're really happy for dad, and you know, it's it's almost, for for me personally, it's almost coming full circle because when I grew up in the public schools, I was a victim of school bullying uh, where kids would tease me because of the the color of my skin and the way I looked as a sick American. Uh, now my, my son's like the coolest kid in the class. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's kind of neat for me. Uh, and, and hopefully for, for my son and my daughter and um, hopefully for, you know, children and uh, minorities across the country. Well, that's great. And we congratulate you, the next mayor of Hoboken, New Jersey, Ravi Bala. Thanks for being on with us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And now joining us here on Powerhouse Politics, Ashley Bennett, a councilperson-elect from Atlantic County, New Jersey, a first-time 
candidate who built who beat a long-standing incumbent Republican. Uh, thank you, Ms. Bennett, for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. So your story is, is fairly incredible. And uh, in a lot of the tellings of it, it starts with a Facebook meme about the Women's March. But I think I'd like you to tell it because I think you can tell it more effectively than any of us could. What got you into this race as a first-time candidate uh, and ultimately propelled you to victory? Sure. Actually, what started is the presidential election. So I just knew that Hillary was going to win, so much so that I went to sleep. And I woke up at 2.30 in the morning and turned to CNN and saw the map go scarlet red. And so I was so shocked, so confused. And that was the catalyst to really get engaged, to understand that all politics starts local. And so I was more involved with my local Democratic Party in Atlanta County. And from there, I became aware of the Facebook meme because I wanted to go to the Women's March, but I had to work. So I watched it on live on CNN. I was so inspired. And then to see that email with the screenshot of the Facebook post by my own elected official was just so disheartening. And so I wrote him a letter and I, just asking all of the things that were happening in Atlanta County, high rates of foreclosure. We had four casinos that are closed, people out of work, high rates of poverty, the opioid epidemic. How do you have time to be on social media? And I didn't, I did not get a response. So I went to the local freeholder meeting and I spoke out. And what we got at the end of that was the women that I surround myself with are strong and sure of themselves and they weren't offended. So I took that as, and many also, as are the rest of us weak. And so I walked out, uh, just feeling so incensed and I decided I'm going to run. I went home and talked to my family, and I was so upset. And they're like, why don't you run? And I, I thought to myself, why don't I? And so that was the start of it. So and, and so, so people are aware, the, the, the Republican uh, freeholder, John Carmen, he published a Facebook, uh, a Facebook meme that uh, during the Women's March that said, just asking, will the women's protest be over in time for them to cook dinner? So that's what we're talking about here. You see that, and that kind of propels you to another level of engagement. Uh, I've got to think it's not just the fact of a social media post, but the actual content. I mean, the, the, the Women's March was a huge event. They got a lot of people engaged, and that was a, a belittling comment that happened just you know, day, a day or two after President Trump was inaugurated. Correct. And the fact that women have worked, they've worked so hard uh, to be ex- just respected and have accomplished and broken down so many barriers to just be mocked and belittled like, belittled like that was just so disheartening. And I, I honestly just couldn't believe it. And on top of that, as I got further into the campaign cycle to find out there were other things that came up that uh, Freeholder Carmen had posted on social media that just made me even more shocked that how is this okay? And what I have stood by throughout the entire campaign cycle, and I still believe that it's never wrong to ask your elected official to hold themselves to a higher standard. 
You know, you were talking about your previous career, the fact this was a huge career shift for you. As I understand, you were working in emergencies or medical services this time just a year ago. And, you know, we've actually talked to a lot of women over the last year who are in, who, whose stories in some ways sound similar, though maybe not as stark with such colorful uh, social media posts. But, um, you know, what what is your message to other women like you who uh, felt inspired to run uh, or others who are considering running but who have been nervous that running means raising money or speaking out and that they're worried they might get questions about uh, a lack of experience or the fact that it's a whole new field for them. What I do, um, and I I want to get across to not only uh, other women, but young people in general. Um, I was the youngest person running for a county seat um, in in my county uh, at 32. Uh, No political experience never even had thought about running for office or being in politics at all. And I want to get across to them to just do it. If you feel passionate about something and you see that something that is not right, stand up, speak out. What you have, your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your education, and your drive and your passion is enough. It's always going to be enough. If you wait for somebody to give you a shot, or to say it's your turn, you'll be waiting forever. It is always your turn when you decide it is. And if you are afraid, do it afraid. I did it afraid. And when you take that step, you never know what could happen. Did you face questions about the fact that you were coming from an entirely different background that you didn't have experience in politics? Absolutely. Um, I had When I was knocking on doors, speaking with residents, People ask me, what do you think that you can accomplish as a rookie? Um, You've never been in politics before. And my answer was, everyone starts somewhere. You don't become seasoned or a veteran until you're actually a rookie. That just doesn't happen. So the, the fact that I have grown up in this community, I still reside in this community, and understand a lot of the challenges that Atlanta County is facing, I can bring a fresh perspective to the the conversation as well as to the freeholder board. So you come into the, the freeholder board. Um, obviously, it's a county-level legislature. So w- w- the, the kind of issues, you touched on some of them earlier, um, rebuilding an economy devastated by the collapse of the casino industry, for instance. How do you take those local issues and continue working on the national themes that's gotten you that got you attention in this race and gotten you so much notoriety nationally since your win? I think starting locally, but connecting it to larger issues. And so what we're seeing is um, a pushback towards divisive rhetoric that seeks to divide people where we are based on respect, inclusion, and a sense of community and diversity. That's where we as people are at our best. And so the when your neighbor's not doing well and they are losing their home, your property value goes down. So you have to be invested in your community. It can't just be about one person. It has to be about us collectively. And that way will speak to the nation. And it, if we all start to think that way, then we can start to change our entire nation. When we start locally in our communities, it has to be a building block from there. 
You know, while President Obama was in office, Democrats lost just under a thousand state legislature seats. How long do you think it will take to win back that number if, if Democrats are even on track to do that? Honestly, from what I've seen, and I'm just one small piece in the puzzle, um, when you look at so many races that have happened in Virginia and, and in New Jersey, I, I'm one small piece. But if you look at the uh, candidates who were elected, you're starting to see a change. More young people, millennials are getting engaged. More women are getting engaged. More people of different faiths, more people of different ethnicities. And so what you're seeing is that push towards respect, inclusion, community, and diversity. And a pushback against that divisive rhetoric that seeks to divide us. Well, and, and I'm curious about that that piece of it because races are run on local issues, and you mentioned a lot of the people that that were questioning what you could bring to the equation here. But you run a you run a local race. How does it connect to the message about the Trump era more broadly? In your travels and talking to constituents before and since the election, how big of a factor was the guy in the White House, President Trump himself? I think it was it was partly a, a factor in that. Um, that that presidential race was so divisive um and so many people felt isolated and disconnected and i think it was a shock i know it was a shock for me uh that how could this happen when uh those type of things are put forth in in a campaign and then when you see your local elected officials buying into that and you see young people walking out in protest of schools when you can open up your history book and connect what's happening historically to what's happening today. That's a scary place. And so I think that we're seeing more and more engagement because of that, that people do not want to live in that type of environment. They don't want to be in that type of community. And so it was that sense of there has to be, there has to be change. And I think that the voters spoke, they, they spoke for change. You know, you're talking about this reaction to a national environment. Earlier, you were you mentioned that you feel like there's a new um, era of Democratic candidates coming to the table, more minorities running, millennials getting involved. Is it just that new candidates, sort of fresh blood in the Democratic Party, is enough to change the tide, to change Democrats' winning streaks? Or, or will those new candidates also carry a new message? Uh, I think that they they are carrying a new message. I think that people are responding to that. I think that they, and, and if you look at the way in which President Trump ran and, and won, people are want to see newness. They want to see a fresh face. And so these progressive candidates that are seemingly coming out of nowhere uh, are attractive. And they bring a sense of, uh, newness, they bring a sense of a, a fresh face, a fresh perspective, and they're passionate about issues. And that's attractive to voters. And, and finally, Ashley Bennett, I, I need to ask what your interactions have been like with the incumbent freeholder, John Carmen, since this. Have you had an opportunity to, to interact with him? I, I, would, would you even share dinner? <laughs> I don't know who cooks, but would you even share a meal with him after all of this? Um, I know that many people think that I have a strong dislike towards 
uh, freeholder Carmen, and I do not. Um, I don't hate him in any way because I don't know him well enough to do so. Uh, I, what I have found is that it's just an incredible sense of tone deafness uh, that certainly it's a shame that that exists, and I hope that there is some change. But I don't have a personal issue with him that I wouldn't be in the same place or wouldn't share a cup of coffee with him or a dinner with him because at the end of the day, he served our country as a veteran and he served our community for 20 years. And that has to have some place of value. And it it has a place of value to me. And I know that his supporters uh, continue to adore him. And that's great. I think that there are issues that he's worked on that need to continue. So I have absolutely no problem speaking to him. I don't know if he feels the same way. But th- that's where I stand. At this point, I wish him well. And I'm sure that he'll continue to serve in some capacity in the community. And I think that should be celebrated as well. All right. Our congratulations to you once again. Freeholder-elect in Atlantic County, New Jersey, Ashley Bennett. Thanks for being here on Powerhouse Politics. Thank you so much. And coming up right after the break, meet the first African-American mayor elected in the state of Montana, a refugee from Liberia. Are you hiring? Join the over 3 million businesses that use Indeed.com for hiring. You can post a job in minutes and manage your candidates from an easy-to-use dashboard. Post your next job on the world's number one job site, Indeed.com. Here on Cape Cod, the summer is wonderful. This is a place where people leave their doors open. A killing on the Cape. There hadn't been a murder in Turo for 30 years. It was everyone's worst nightmare. Jealousy, anger, secrets, sex, and money. Believe me, everyone in this story had a motive. I couldn't imagine who could have killed her. Six heart-pounding podcasts. Follow the clues, the evidence, the new interviews. Listen now. And then, don't miss the explosive two-hour documentary television event, Friday night, November 24th, on ABC. Is the right man in jail? And now joining us on Powerhouse Politics, our final interview in the series of the Faces of the Resistance. Meet the mayor-elect of Helena, Montana, Mr. Wilmot Collins, a refugee from Liberia who who won with a Democratic progressive message, uh, beating an incumbent of some 16 years. Uh, Mr. Collins, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So what, what has this ride been like? Uh, I can't imagine that, uh, the, the, you got, that the mayoral race in Helena got a lot of national attention, and now I'm thinking you're getting all of this, uh, this notoriety, this publicity around the election. What, is been, what has it been like to, to, to sit where you sit over the last week or so to, to ride this wave? In one word, I would say a whirlwind. It's been a whirlwind. Uh, <clears throat> when we started our campaign, we we started in Helena, Montana. It's a small city. And uh, we didn't think about the national media at all. It didn't come across. And um, we went through our campaign, went through the process, and um, knocked on doors, pounded the pavement, sent out flyers, met with the voters, um, uh, interacted with them through the the various forums. And then uh, election night, we 
had a watch party at a local Mexican grill, and we're waiting for the results. We waited, and about 8.30, 8.40, the first round came in, and I was leading by 132 votes. And um, my son started screaming. I said, hey, 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 we have to be cautiously optimistic because – 132 votes is nothing, but it's a lot in Helena, Montana, with, sure. such, with a small population. And then uh, as the night went on, it increased. My margin increased by 180-something, and then it went to two, and then it went to 300, and then 388. And um, then I got a call from the U.S. Senator congratulating me. So <laughs> at that point, at that point, we broke out. The applause, and then I looked at my wife. Because both of us were refugees from Liberia. I looked at my wife, and we hugged, and it was an emotional moment. Wow! That's Called the... my son. We hugged. Yeah, that's 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 really incredible. In <laughs> uh, in winning by, I guess, a relative landslide, about three hundred votes. It's uh... <laughs> three hundred and thirty-eight. Hey, okay, don't, we'll don't count. We'll count thirty-eight all. off now. Share with us your all. share with us your story. Uh, so you you the civil war in Liberia in the 1990s. You flee from that. You're a refugee from that. And how did you how did you wind up in Montana? You know, I always tell people there's only two ways you can come to Montana: a guy following a girl, or a girl following a guy. And this time, <laughs> I was following my wife <laughs> because my wife surprisingly she was an exchange. She was an African exchange student in Helena. She went to Helena High School. And um, when we fled Liberia, she was still in touch with her host family and her host family. And we contacted them and asked for assistance. And they were more than willing. They contacted the local Carroll College, a Catholic institution. And they awarded my wife a scholarship to do nursing. My wife was in medical school back home. And she accepted. But it was for her. And two weeks before departure, we realized she was pregnant. And we want, I wanted to change plans because I didn't know if I would ever come to America. I didn't want to be away from my family. But she assured me that she would do well and she would wait for me. And um, so she departed. She went to Carroll. She graduated with high honors. She had our baby. And I had to go through the refugee process, which was registering with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees and go through that process. And that process took me two years and seven months. When I first saw my little girl, she was turning two. So I came, um, I came in at uh, 9 or 4, February 17th. I met my daughter for the first time. Wow. So that's how we ended up in Helena. You know, I think that uh, some people listening to this uh, who don't live in Helena might be really surprised to hear that um, that race didn't come up as an issue there. Uh, you know, we we uh, unfortunately often hear in the national media about um, tense racial issues that we've we've been in a in a national conversation over the last year where politics right, right. sometimes takes on really racially charged tones. You know, you said yeah. that you felt like you were able to overcome those questions because the race was about uh, local issues. But are there other lessons to be learned from your campaign um, or, or a bigger lesson about how maybe maybe Montana or the country should be talking about race and politics differently? You know, um, <clears throat> I know one thing for sure that came up was there was an issue about a Confederate fountain we had in uh, Helena. 
was in one of the parks, and that's the last fountain in the Pacific Northwest. And after what happened in Charlottesville, the commissioners and the mayor reconvened a session, and they wanted to hear from the public because that had become a hotbed. And um, it was almost divided. 50% of the, 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 the respondents wanted the fountain to stay, but 50% wanted it to go. And for me, I, uh, the, the first time this topic came up was two years ago. And I was there saying, let's not erase history. Let's explain history. Let's put a plaque up on the fountain and explain exactly who these people were. Let our little kids and grandkids see our, the dark side of history. And it was agreed upon by almost everybody. And we decided to do that. Two years later, the plaque was still not there. And then when Charlottesville happened, I, uh, when I was one of those that petitioned the mayor and the commissioners, I think this time we need to take it down. If this is the last fountain in the Pacific Northwest, it needs to come down because I don't want this community be being the breeding ground for white nationalists or white supremacists. And it was overwhelmingly passed by the mayor and the commissioners. So the very next day, the fountain was down. And that became a really hot topic. But other than that, race had never played into this. And I, you see, and my life has been an open book. And um, so when I started running, when I decided to run, I called a few of my friends and explained to them, this is what I want to do. And the, and the first thing they told me was, what are your issues here that you see being that are not being done that you think will resonate with the voters? And I said, look, uh, I've worked in the human services for a while, and I see a lot of teenage homelessness. I see veterans homelessness. I see the provider of the essential services not getting their, their needs not being met. And so we did our research. I realized that in 2008, believe this or not, we had only 20 teenage homeless kids in our district. But in 2014, it went to 132. 2016, it was 150. That was alarming for such a small community. I said, that's what I want to put out there. And then I realized our providers of essential services, the firefighters and the uh, and, uh, police officers, there were calls that the firefighters could not make because they were short staffed. Out of three, 5,332 calls, there were 75 calls that had to be delayed because they were short-staffed. And out of the 75, there were 15 calls they just did not attend. And that's a no-go. That's a safety risk for my community. And I ran on that, and it resonated with the voters. Of course, when I went knocking doors, there were a couple of people who intentionally wanted to know my views on the fountain. The fountain came up all the time because they thought it was a racially charged uh, incident. And I told them, I explained just what I explained to you. I said, this is what happened, and that's why I did what I did the second time around. The first time around, I didn't want it to be gone because I didn't see an issue. But the second time, there was an issue. And so that's what happened, and it, whatever I told them resonated. And today I am mayor-elect. It's, it's interesting. Um, I think that makes sense, and maybe other communities could learn from that kind of open dialogue, the lawmakers or candidates having an evolving uh, position on an issue like that and being transparent about it. You know, I'm, I'm 
curious there's also about the conversation taking place that you've surely heard about immigration as an immigrant yourself um, what is your reaction to this um, this idea that from a lot of folks here in Washington that the country should actively limit um, legal immigration as well as crack down on um, legal immigration uh, you in many ways represent uh, arguably represent sort of the American dream so do you have a message to to folks on that issue you know, and this is what, and it's sad. It's very sad for, for us to come to this point. But most of the time, people that are kicking against this, the, the, the ordinary citizens that are kicking against it, they have no clue between legal and illegal immigration. They have no clue. And what I did was I attended a lot of forums explaining the people linked refugees to undocumented immigrants. And um, when I started running, I was reading the papers almost every day, and people were talking about, we can't have an illegal immigrant running for mayor. and But they didn't understand. And so my advice would be, we have to educate the public. We have to let them know that this country was built on immigration. And let's define who's an immigrant Who's an undocumented? Who's a refugee? Who's an asylum seeker? You know, if we can get to, if we can start getting people to the table and dialogue, and start explaining the differences, believe me, if the people in Helena, Montana can understand it, people anywhere can understand it. Of course, Montana is one of the reddest states in the nation. This president was elected on the promise of uh, extreme vetting for refugees and in, in addition to cutting down drastically on the number of refugees who were admitted. So how, how do you get that message out, starting in Montana and more broadly and from now, the perch that you're going to be in? You know, the first thing I will do is I will ask them to identify what is extreme vetting because it took me two years and seven months. And the only thing they didn't do was to cut me open and look inside of me. <laughs> All right? Yes. They didn't cut me and look inside, but they tore me up from from my time in Liberia. They, 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 they know how to do their homework. So when I ask people, what do you consider extreme vetting? They're stuck. They don't know what extreme vetting is. We all we are already doing extreme vetting. The process we have in place works. Do you know why it works? And you have you have uh, uh, evidence to that, because if you compare the, the incidents that are occurring in Europe and elsewhere and not occurring here, that should give you a, a pause to say, why is it not happening here? Because we are vetting. And uh, people cannot tell you what extreme vetting is. They can't. You know, we were talking about uh, Montana being a deeply red state. So I am going to ask you another political question. If it's that reason that some people here in Washington wonder if one of your senators, John Tester, a Democrat, is one of the most vulnerable Democrats, uh, what do you think his his sort of chances for reelection are? You know, what is what is your sense of of how he is playing in the state? And maybe folks in Washington have it wrong. I mean, is your election an example or evidence that what I want to tell you, the people in Washington have it wrong. You know, I'll be honest, Tester is one of those senators who does not shy away from anything. Tester will meet anybody at any time, at anywhere. He is one of those who, when he comes on vacation, it's not vacation. When he comes on holiday, it's not holiday. He's working. 
he's moving around. So when, when I hear that Tesla is the most vulnerable, I'm shocked. I said, where are they getting this stuff from? Tesla will get back into the Senate, and he will continue to represent Montana. So, because uh, Tesla is very popular in, in, uh, in Montana. And imagine I don't know he was, where Washington is getting that from. He was, he was the senator that congratulated you on election night, I'd imagine. He was the first one that okay. called, yeah. And then uh, four days later, I got a, I got a call also from Senator Daines. Yeah, sure. But is the yeah. Democratic Party in the state stronger than Washington maybe gives it credit for? I mean, because when you look at the map and you look at the rest of the elected officials, it still looks really red. You know, our this state, our state, it, sometimes I sit back and laugh because if you look at it, we've had a mixture of everything. The local rural politics is extremely red. If you go to the cities and the bigger cities in Helena, I mean, in Montana, they're a mixture. If you look at our governor, our governor is dealing, he's a Democratic governor, and he's dealing with a Republican uh, Senate and House. We have one senator in his, uh, it's always been a mixture. So nationally, I think it will remain that way. Locally, the House and the Senate will always remain that way. So we, I think we will continue to be a mixture, and that check and balance will, will always be there. Uh, uh, Mr. Collins, a uh, final question for you that imagines a hypothetical that I, I actually think is probably going to come to pass at some point. So I want you to think ahead to this moment. Uh, you're the mayor okay. of Helena in a couple of months, and Air Force One lands at the airport. And we, we know the scene. It always happens where the elected officials are there on the tarmac, uh, and the, then it's a nice photo op, and the president waves, and he comes down the stairs, and he meets you, and he meets the, the new mayor of Helena, Montana. What do you say to him? I will welcome him to my city. He is also my commander in chief. I have seven. I have seven months into the to retire from the U.S. military. So, I will welcome the the commander in chief and the president of this country into into the, my city and ask what can I do. He is still my president. I have to respect that. And, and he is still my commander in chief. And is there any message you'd want to deliver to him? If I have to deliver any message to him, it will be message on immigration. I, I will, if I have the chance, I'll tell him, I think you got it wrong. If I am granted permission to speak freely and I'll let him know, I say, I think, I, and I will try to explain to him why I think it, the process he is using is, is not to the best interest of the country, but rather to a few, to a few who, uh, don't want to see this happen, who don't want to see this country move forward, because that is the only thing it would do. With the immigration policies going around, going about now, this country will not move forward. And I'll be open with him and talk to him about immigration. All right. We have it there. The mayor-elect of Helena, Montana, Wilmot Collins, we appreciate you joining us here. Thanks for doing it. And good luck. Uh, good luck leading, leading the city into a new era. Thank you so much. I appreciate this interview. So, Mary Alice, I have to say, this has been one of the most refreshing podcasts that I've had the, the privilege of being part of, to hear the voices, to hear the individuals who were inspired by this. You know, we in Washington, we miss a lot of these storylines along the way, but uh, these are actual individuals. These are real people who took the message and ran for office. And I think whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, it shouldn't matter. That's the, the inspiring story of democracy and the opportunity that it, that it presents. And in all of these complicated cross-currents, to have people emerge at this moment, step forward to lead, first-time candidates, people that are inspired by, by events 
it's kind of the way it's supposed to be. Right. It's a reminder that while all of these candidates and sort of newly elected uh, folks acknowledge that the national climate, the the political conversation right now changed and impacted um, what was going on, they also said rightly that, hold on, people just voted for me, too, that who exactly is running, what someone's ideas are, uh, what the what the real choices are is, is fundamentally what, what voters are, are looking at, what voters are deciding. And, and it is an important reminder for us here that that are constantly looking for trends and patterns to remember that that the individual's name on the ballot can make all the difference. And if you're looking for a trend out of these interviews, we are in an angry, divisive time in American politics. These are some of the most graceful winners that I have ever interviewed. You didn't hear in in these voices of the folks we talked to in, in Ravi Bala, in Ashley Bennett, and Wilmot Collins, you didn't hear a, I stuck it to Donald Trump. You didn't hear a, you know, thank good, I, I, thank God I got rid of that guy. Uh, you didn't hear any dancing on political graves. You heard people who said uh, that they still had respect for the people that they defeated, uh, that they still wanted to have a conversation with the, the people on the other side. You heard Wilmot Collins say he wanted permission to speak freely before he would I- engage in any kind of a substantive conversation. So I think that... I mean, that reminding could, us that as a vet, the first thing that comes to mind is, of course, the president of above all else, is his commander-in-chief. Amazing. And I just think that the grace that uh, that they all display, of course, there's always going to be exceptions, and this doesn't speak for, for any larger group, but at least in the folks we talked to today, they showed an, an enormous grace that I think charts a, a kind of different path forward than this very, very tumultuous and angry time that we live in. Right. I think there are plenty of reporters here in Washington that would love if lawmakers here on both sides of the aisle would make a point of uh, having dinners together, for instance, like we were talking about. You're right. I agree. It was really refreshing. All right. We'll have to check back with them when they're actually in office and (laughs) dealing with it all from the other side. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, For Mary Alice Parks, I'm Rick Klein. Our our thanks to the team, Megan Hughes, for pulling this together with the bookings, Avery Miller, Justin Coleman for helping on the research, and uh, Dave Rind, as always, behind the controls. Please uh, like the podcast. Give us a review on iTunes. And as always, click on us next time. 